The great Dutch theologian Herman Bavink has said that the Lord's Supper is a meal, the essential meal of God and his people. It is a sacrificial meal par excellence at which believers receive Christ himself as he gave his life for them. He goes on to say that in redemption, Christ gives himself for believers. And at the Lord's Supper, Christ gives himself to believers. Saints, the question that I want to ask you this morning as we begin our sermon is, what is your view of the Lord's Supper? What is your view of the Lord's Supper? Now, I'm not asking whether or not you, should, you believe that only believers should partake of the Lord's Supper, or whether or not you believe that Jesus Christ is really present in the bread and of the cup. I'm not asking those various debate questions that happened in the 16th century and in the 17th century. But rather what I'm asking is, how high do you view the Lord's Supper? Or how low do you view the Lord's Supper? If you were to view the Lord's Supper in comparison to the preached word, which one would be higher in your view? If you were to view the Lord's Supper in comparison to baptism, which would be higher? If you were to view the Lord's Supper in comparison to the singing of hymns and psalms and spiritual songs, then which one would be of most importance to you? What I want to argue this morning is that the Lord's Supper is on par with those great things that we love about the church. We all come this morning, yes, to sing to our Lord, to fellowship with one another, to pray, but we come to hear the preached word. But friends, we also are to come to fellowship with Christ at his table. That is why, or one of the reasons why, we are to wake up. We are to long for Sunday, because we get to fellowship and commune with our risen and ascended Lord. So what is your view of the Lord's Supper? One of the great Puritans, Thomas Watson, has a helpful way of seeing the Lord's Supper. Thomas Watson viewed the Lord's Supper as a visible sermon, as a visible sermon, a mirror in which to gaze on the sufferings and death of Jesus Christ. Watson would go on to say, God, to help our faith, does not give us an audible word, but a visible sign. The Lord's Supper is a visible sign. It's an audible word that preaches without words the death and the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And Watson couldn't be more correct. 
For the Lord's Supper points to us many truths of the Christian life. At the Lord's Supper, we remember the sufferings and the death of Jesus Christ. At the Lord's Supper, we receive the benefits of the redemption we have in Jesus Christ. And at the Lord's Supper, we look forward to the future when we will all sit together with our risen and ascended Lord at the marriage banquet, or we know as the marriage supper of the Lamb. What this means, friends, is the Lord's Supper, first and foremost, is not about us. The Lord's Supper is not about what we do, but rather the Lord's Supper from start to finish is about Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper is Christocentric. It's Christotelic. That means that at the very center of the Lord's Supper is Jesus Christ. At the very end of the Lord's Supper is Jesus Christ. It's not about what we do. I think a lot of us think that. It's not about what we do in light of what Christ has done, but the Lord's Supper, first and foremost, is about what Christ has done. Not merely our response to Christ, but first and foremost, what Jesus Christ has done. And God has given to us visible signs to show us what Jesus Christ has done for us. So this morning, I want us to consider the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. And my aim this morning is to raise your awareness, to raise your hearts, to raise your affections, and to raise your love for Christ's table. And to do that, I'm not going to speak of the origins of the Lord's Supper per se, or do a biblical survey of the Lord's Supper, or the various debates of the Lord's Supper, but I want to talk about the nature of the Lord's Supper. Meaning, what happens when we partake of the Lord's Supper? What does the Lord's Supper mean when we gather together and fellowship with the body and blood of Jesus Christ? And to help us do this, I have three points. Number one, remembering the past. Number two, delighting in the present. And number three, longing for the future. Remembering the past, delighting in the present, and longing for the future. Let's consider the first point, and that is remembering the past. The first aspect, and there are three aspects to the Lord's Supper. There are three things we have to know that happens, that the Lord's Supper is all about, is we remember something from the past. That's the first aspect of the Lord's Supper, that we remember something from the past. In other words, the Lord's Supper is a memorial. Now, I had the opportunity to visit Washington, D.C. a few years back, and if you ever visit Washington, D.C., you are immediately introduced, and you sort of enter into this world of history. It's like everywhere you turn, there are things that are connecting you and that are pointing back to the past. There are various statues. 
There are various buildings. There are just all sorts of things, roads, that connects us to the past. Well, those visible signs of the buildings and of the streets and the things in Washington, those things point us to the past. And likewise, the bread and the cup are visible signs that point us to the past. The bread and the cup, they point us and connect us to the past and they remind us of the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, before we move on, I might slip up and say the bread and the wine instead of the bread and the cup. So, forgive me if I do, but you shouldn't forgive me because it's not a bad thing. Jesus says in Luke chapter 22, verses 19 through 20, And he took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup uh, after they had eaten, saying, This cup uh, that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The cup and the bread are used for us to remember something. And this theme of remembrance plays a big role in the Old Testament. After the flood, God tells Noah that the rainbow is a covenant sign. And each time that you look upon the rainbow that you will see, God's promise that he will not wipe out the earth, that he will not judge the earth in water again. That each time we look at the rainbow, we are to remember the goodness of God. It's a covenant sign that points us to God and what he has done. This is what is said in Genesis chapter 9, verses 16 and 17. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and and every living creature on all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh on the earth. The covenantal sign of the rainbow reassures us. Even now, saints, each time after it rains, when you see the rainbow, it reassures us that God's promises to Noah still apply today. We also see this theme of remembrance in the relationship between God and Israel. It's just a little alarm. It's not a bomb. We're not threatened. We're okay. I think it's reminding you to do something. Um, We see this theme of remembrance in the relationship between God and Israel. The Passover meal was to be a memorial meal. It was to remind and it pointed the Israels back to their redemption and bondage and slavery. Every year, Israelites would participate in this Passover meal to remember one thing, that God is their Savior. 
Every time they would gather together and eat, it was to remind them of their salvation out of the bondage and slavery in Egypt. This is what God says in Exodus chapter 12, verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statue forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And friends, this remembrance is what Christ calls us to not merely observe, but to participate in. Each time we partake of his table, Christ tells his disciples that when they gather to partake of the bread and drink of the cup, they are to remember what those elements signify. It's not just we're drinking grape juice and we are eating some bread. But those visible signs point to something greater. In other words, the elements of the Lord's Supper carry great and significant weight. The broken bread points to the body of the Lord. The body that was broken for our sake. As Isaiah 42 Verse 10 says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the body of Christ that was crushed on our behalf for his people. It was our Lord's back that was bruised, that was spit on, that was whipped. And as we think about and look upon the bread, we are being reminded of the body of Christ. In similar way, when we consider the bread we also must consider the cup it is the wine that reminds us of the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins jesus christ says this covenant is the new covenant or this cup is the new covenant in my blood christ institutes the new covenant by the shedding of his blood each time you look at the cup you are to remember that we are not under the old covenant, that we don't need animal sacrifices, but we are under the new covenant in which Jesus Christ is the perfect sacrifice for us. In order for the Father's wrath to be appeased, in order for His wrath to be propitiated, a spotless blood sacrifice had to be offered up. In order for our sins to be forgiven, Blood from a perfect sacrifice had to be shed. And saints, it is the blood from the God-man, Jesus Christ, where we have the forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation to God. It could be no other way. Why do we have eternal life in Christ? Because Jesus Christ shed His eternal blood. How can we know that We will be justified not just today, but for all eternity. Because Jesus Christ's blood is of infinite value. He is the God-man. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 1-7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. It's Christ's blood that removes our punishment. It's Christ's blood that removes the barrier between sinful man and holy God and saints. Each time we participate in the Lord's Supper, we are connecting ourselves to the time when Christ redeemed us 
by his precious blood. As I said last week, it's a terrible thing to look upon the cross and see a bloody, bleeding Savior, but also, saints, it's a glorious and lovely thing because those were drops of love that our Savior shed for us. As one Puritan said, the more bloody, the more lovely. Because when we see a bloody Savior, we see the great lengths that our Savior went for us and our salvation. The Lord's Supper, first and foremost, is a memorial. It's a reminder. The elements of the Supper are a visible picture in which we are to remember what God did to save us from His wrath. That is why I am so against movies about Jesus Christ and movies about what Jesus Christ did for us. We don't need any visible signs. We have the Lord's Supper. And it's been divinely instituted by Jesus Christ. Now, before we close this point... I want us to consider the Lord's word, remember. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Now, what does it mean for us to remember at the Lord's table? The Puritan John Flavel distinguished between two types of remembering. The first is speculative and transient and the second is affectionate and permanent he says quote a speculative remembrance and hear this is only to call the mind the history of such a person and his sufferings that Christ was once put to death in the flesh but an affectionate remembrance is when we so call Christ and his death to our minds as to fill the powerful impressions thereof upon our hearts. Friends, did you catch the difference? One is remembering merely the facts of Christ's death. It's remembering merely some of the biblical data of Christ's death and then moving on with the rest of our lives. It's to say, yeah, Jesus Christ died for me. It's to gaze upon his cross and then turn your face away from the cross. But the other is remembering Christ's death, considering his sufferings, and being stirred in the heart and gripped in your soul. It's to be moved at the center of our being as you recall the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not just to gaze upon the cross and then move on. But it's to set your whole being under the foot of the cross. It's to set your whole mind, your whole affections, your whole heart, your whole emotions. It's to put yourself in the soldier's shoes as they looked upon a bleeding Savior is to remember the grace purchased at Christ's death is the same grace we need to come to the Lord's table. Saints, we are to have this affectionate view 
of the Lord's Supper. This is how we are to remember the Lord's death and sufferings at His table. Not merely some data or facts, but gazing upon our bleeding and bloody Savior. Just as when you look upon your trophies that you've collected while playing sports, and when you gaze upon those trophies, you're, you're looking upon the great lengths that you went through in order for you to obtain that trophy. And you, when you remember all that you went through, when you look upon that trophy, I'm sure you crack a smile. I'm sure you get butterflies remembering some of the games. You might even shed a tear. Well, if a trophy, or looking at your wedding ring, or maybe looking at old footage of your wedding day, or maybe when you went to Disneyland and looking at pictures then, if those things muster up such affections in us, then how much more should the bread and the cup stir our emotions? If a picture, if a trophy, if a building moves us in such a way, then how much more should the bread and the cup move us? Friends, at the table you are remembering when Christ sets you free. You are remembering on the cross the Father declaring His love for you. You're remembering on the cross that Jesus proved His love for you. You are remembering the words of Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was a chastisement that brought us peace. But by His wounds we are healed. When you see the bread, when you see the cup, you are to see the agony of Christ on the cross. My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? When you see the bread, when you see the cup, you are to see the grace and mercy of Christ on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And when you see the bread and the cup, you are also to see the victory of Christ on the cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Friends, Jesus doesn't want us just to remember the cross just for the sake of remembering. But he wants us to grab hold of the cross. To grab hold of him. To remember every single saying on the cross and the things that led up to his sufferings and death. We are to live in the moment. Saints, the question I have for you this morning is do you remember the cross of Jesus Christ? Or do you have spiritual amnesia? Isn't that one of the greatest hindrances in the Christian life? Is we have spiritual amnesia? That we are so quick to forget the greatest thing that has ever happened to us in all of history. To be quite honest with you, I think this 
more and more each Sunday evening when I don't see as many people here as I see in the evening. If you say you love Christ, then you must love His meal. You can't love Jesus Christ and not love Jesus Christ's meal. If you say you love Christ, then you must love His command to observe the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is not a suggestion. It's not something we think about and debate whether or not we should do it, but it is a command from Christ. Friends, if you're outright avoiding or purposely not coming to evening service to hear the word, and to partake and participate in the Lord's Supper, then honestly ask yourself, are you really saved in Jesus Christ? Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not preaching works righteousness. I'm not saying that you need to observe the Lord's Supper in order to be saved, but what I'm saying is the saved observe the Lord's Supper. This is what saved people do. Just as if you worked at Walmart, you put on the Walmart uniform and the badge. But you don't, think, you don't do the things that Walmart employees do. They're going to question if you are really an employee of Walmart, if you are really of Walmart. Well, likewise. If you don't do the things that Christ commands, that Christians do, then are you really saved in Christ? Why hold yourself back from remembering what Jesus Christ has done for you? I wish we can have service every single day in order that we can come to the table every single day and be reminded visibly of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Wouldn't it be great to go back in time to, to see what Christ did for us? Well, we don't need to do that. Because Christ has given to us bread, he's given to us wine or juice. And it points us back to his death and sufferings. This is the first point that we must consider. We must get right. This is what stirs our affections. This is what stirs our emotions. This is what makes us long to partake and participate of the Lord's Supper. That is the Lord's Supper is a memorial where we look back at the sufferings and death of Jesus Christ. Consider the second point now, and that is delighting in the present. Delighting in the present. The Lord's Supper is not merely a memorial, although it is that. The Lord's Supper is not merely a proclamation of Christ's death, although it is that. But it is set apart as a means of grace, whereby Christ himself, through the Spirit, seals, confirms, and guarantees the benefits of his death. So in the Lord's Supper, we look back at the redemption accomplished in the present. And in the present, Christ, by the ordinary means of the bread and of the cup, applies that redemption to our lives. In other words, the Lord's Supper is a means of grace for the people of God. That's the second point. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace. Now you might ask, what is a means of grace? Well, first let's answer, what are means? And we all know what means are. 
The way I'm talking to you right now is through the means of this microphone. The way that you talk to someone from one house to the other is through the means of a cell phone. The lieutenant or commander might tell a soldier before they go out to the battlefield, do whatever means necessary to accomplish your task. So in other words, means are used. They are delivery systems that help people get one thing to the other. So now let's define a means of grace. The means of grace are activities. They are the things. They are the delivery systems commanded by Christ through which the Spirit of Christ blesses the people of Christ. So we have Christ, and we have Christ's people. Christ desires to bless his people. How does he do that? He does that through the means of grace. Richard Barcelos defines the means of grace as the delivery systems God has instituted to bring grace. Now, what is this grace? It is spiritual power, spiritual change, spiritual help, and spiritual fortitude and spiritual blessings to needy souls on earth. Grace comes from the Father through the Son and by the Spirit and gives us blessings and grace. Now, what are these blessings we receive from these means? What are the great gifts that we receive from the Father? The answer is this, through the cup and the bread, all of the benefits of Christ's redemption are communicated to his people. All of the benefits of Christ's redemption are communicated to his people. In other words, Jesus Christ takes what he won on our behalf and he applies and distributes those benefits to our lives. Now, this doesn't mean that we are earning more grace or we are earning more justification. When I say that Jesus applies and distributes the benefits he won for us, we aren't to think that we are being justified, but rather we are to think we are being sanctified. The bread and the cup are used to set us apart, to detach us from our flesh, to sanctify and conform us more into the image of Jesus Christ. That is why when the word is being preached, it's a converting ordinance. But the Lord's Supper is a sanctifying ordinance. It's used to help us spiritually. Jesus Christ, by His Spirit and through the means of grace, is sanctifying us. He's changing us. He's spiritually detaching us from our flesh and sinful desires. The means of grace are the ordinary things in which God uses to work on us spiritually. What great and grand promise and great news is that? Ordinary things such as juice and bread, God uses to work on us spiritually. So through prayer, 
through the preached word, through baptism. Those are the means of grace that God uses to work on us spiritually. Likewise, through the bread and the cup, we receive all the benefits of Christ's redemption to help us become more like Christ. Our confession in chapter 30 says, the Lord's Supper is our spiritual nourishment. In other words, the Lord's Supper is the diet for the believer. It is the spiritual food for the believer. Just as the Spirit feeds our souls when we are fellowshipping with Christ, we are to remember this type of spiritual nourishment that we have when we consider the body and blood of the Lord. Consider the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 16. He says, The cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ. In other words, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, brings down from heaven all of the benefits of his life, death, and resurrection. At the supper, we are actually, and hear me now, not physically, not carnally, we are not Roman Catholics, we are not Lutherans or Eastern Orthodox, but we are actually fellowshipping with Jesus Christ, spiritually feasting on his body and drinking of his blood. Our confession says in chapter 30, paragraph 7, we spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified in all the benefits of his death. The body and the blood of Christ being not then uh, carnally or corporally, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance. Jesus Christ, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, is spiritually present with you. He is with you in a real yet spiritual way. And friends, this is where I hold up my, yes, I am a spiritual Christian card. This is where I hold up, yes, Christ is here in a mystical way. I don't know how it happens. But this is what the Word says. At the Lord's Supper, Christ is with us spiritually. By faith, we are brought in union and communion with the risen and ascended Lord through the Holy Spirit. All this means, saints, is the Lord's Supper is not an empty shell. The Lord's Supper is not something that we do and we merely just look back at the saving work of Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ is really present with His people. And the Spirit of Christ feeds us His body and blood. Saints, what this does for us spiritually is it confirms and seals our salvation. God in the supper pledges to us. He promises to us, this is a promise from God that all of the benefits that Christ had obtained for us is ours by faith. The bread and the cup are God's pledges. It's His promises. That Christ is yours and you are His. You see, saints, the Lord's Supper is more about what God does rather than what we do for Him. It's merely what God says 
merely than our response. The Lord's Supper is more about the promises that God makes to us, the spiritual growth He gives to us, and the Christ He unites to us. The Lord's Supper is a message and an assurance to us of divine grace. And as we close this point, if one was to say, how can I grow more spiritually? I want to and I desire to grow more like Christ. Why can't I be more like Christ? Why can't I get over this, this sin that is like a thorn in my side? Well, one of the answers lies in not merely reading more, not merely praying more, not merely fellowshipping with other Christians more, but regularly participating in the Lord's Supper. Consider this words from the Puritan Thomas Doolittle. It is hypocrisy to complain of the hardness of your heart and yet not use the means to have it softened. And hear this. To complain of the power of your sin and not use the means to have it weakened. In other words, if you're complaining over the power of sin in your life and don't participate in the Lord's Supper, then you're not serious about fighting your sin. Simple as that. If you are questioning your salvation, every time you're sin and you are not coming to the table, then you're not serious about really fighting your, your, your sin and wondering if you are a, a Christian. God assures us at the table, if you receive Him by faith, that you are His and He is yours. Friends, you want to grow spiritually? You want to grow more like Christ? Come to his table. That's it. Come to his table and receive all of the benefits. What are you saying about your spiritual life if you don't attend the Lord's Supper? It is those who neglect the Lord's Supper to show that they don't need spiritual help from Christ. I'd rather get it from this self-help book. I'd rather get it from this sermon from this preacher who I like. No. Why don't you get it from the divine hand itself? Get it from Jesus Christ. And we do that by partaking of the bread and of the cup. I urge you today, saints, to grab hold of the benefits awaiting for you at his table. Taste and see that the Lord is good. There is none ever that truly tasted Christ and went away unsatisfied. So this is the second aspect of the Lord's Supper, a means of grace where we commune with Christ as we spiritually eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. The third point, and lastly, longing for the future. Longing for the future. There is a past aspect to the Lord's Supper there is something that we receive presently, which is the grace and the benefits of Christ's redemption, but also we look forward to the future as we look upon and gaze upon the bread and the cup. In Mark 14, 25, Jesus said of the cup, 
Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Paul stated in 1 Corinthians 11.26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. From the words of Christ and from the words of the Apostle Paul, it's clear that the Lord's Supper is a meal that prepares us for an event in the future. It's preparing us for something. And this event is pictured for us by John in Revelation chapter 19, verse 6 through 9. The word of the Lord says this, Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many, one, uh, many waters, like the sound of mighty pedals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice. Let him give, uh, give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saint. And the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. What a glorious passage that is. In this text, the Lord's Supper is envisioned as a rehearsal dinner for a wedding. It's for us to rehearse our wedding day. It's a day in the future when Jesus, the groom, will finally be wed physically to his bride, the church. What this means, saints, is when we participate in the Lord's Supper, not only are we looking back... Not only do we enjoy and rejoice in the benefits of Christ, but we look forward with great anticipation to our wedding day. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was preparing for my wedding, I was so excited. And when I got to that wedding rehearsal, I think everyone was agitated, but I loved it. I loved going through. I, I, I remember telling the, my wedding planner, can we do this again? Can we walk down the aisle and practice again? I wanted to continue to practice. Well, likewise, saints, what we have before us is our rehearsal and practice day. Every single time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are practicing. We are rehearsing the greatest wedding feast in all of history. Mine is second, but this is going to be the first. The greatest wedding feast that's one we'll ever engage in. The bride, who is us, dressed in fine white linen, and Jesus Christ, the perfect bridegroom, beckoning us. And I can, I can probably picture him pulling out our chair and saying, eat with me, dine with me. What this means, saints, is that the Lord's Supper shows us that that history is moving somewhere. That we are not digressing in history, but we are escalating. That history is moving to a positive place, to a climactic, glorious point. And that climactic point is when the kingdom of God will be fully realized, when the clouds in, in the sky break, and the people of God will finally physically be with their king 
the Lord's Supper prepares us for such a monumental event. At the Lord's Supper, we have a foretaste of the great banquet in God's kingdom that is to come. The bread and the wine are miniature rehearsals of what will be the greatest celebration in all of history. The celebration of the marriage supper of the Lamb. This fits quite well with the Lord's Day, does it not? Because Monday through Saturday, we walk along this earth and we come Sunday with, with dry mouths, with parched throats, and we need, we need the, the sweet uh, uh, body and blood of our Lord. The Lord's, or the Lord's Supper, I should say, the Lord's Day, when we consider it from this aspect, is truly an oasis for God's people. It truly is for us to rest in all of the benefits of Christ. As one theologian has said, the Lord's Supper is in many ways our engagement ring with, from Christ. Now, again, I gave Leela, my wife, the second greatest engagement ring. But the first and most greatest engagement ring that one has ever given to a, a, a future bride is the bread and the cup. It's his signed and pledge to us of his great love and faithfulness to us. You want to know how great, how faithful Christ is? Uh, Ralph, we talked about this uh, the other day. You want to know how much Christ loves you? Here it is. He says to us, I will never leave you, nor I will never forsake you, but I am coming back for you. That is what the Lord's Supper pledges to us, that he's not going to leave us as orphans, but he's going to come back one day. You do realize that, right? I hope we all believe that, that Jesus Christ one day is going to come back. And whether we die before that comes, we will see him face to face the bread and the cup is Christ's pledge for us. At the supper, he says to us, this is my body given for you, and this is my blood poured out for you. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are believing that one day our groom will come for us. He's going to come for us one day, and that our marriage will be complete. Saints, I don't know about you, but this should excite you me and you, about taking the Lord's Supper. This should heighten our view. We should be eager to take and partake of uh, the Lord's Supper because it shows us how close we are to our wedding day. But saints, as sweet as that sounds, we aren't to think that the Lord's Supper is merely only our fellowship to Christ. We aren't to think that the Lord's Supper is merely us and Jesus Christ. But the Lord's Supper is about our fellowship with one another. One theologian has said, the church ought to be a small miniature replica of heaven's unity on earth as we anticipate becoming the church gathered in the Father's house, basking in the glory of the Son and empowered by His Spirit. What a wonderful quote that is. 
that the church is to be a miniature replica of heaven's unity on earth. And one of the ways we show this heavenly unity is by uh, together participating in the Lord's Supper. That's how we show our unity with one another. Think about the unity of Christ's church that the Lord's Supper pictures for us. We eat from one loaf. We drink from one cup. And when we do those things, we are eating and drinking of the one Christ. You see, saints, there isn't a Christ for you and a Christ for me. But there is one Christ whom the Father sent. And it is that one Christ that is the food that we have in common. And it is that one Christ that binds us together. So at the table, we receive not only the pledge of our union with Christ, but our pledge with our union with each other. The Lord's Supper unites us together. So to summarize our three main points, what have we learned? We've seen that the Lord's Supper is a memorial meal where we look back at the sufferings and death of Jesus Christ. Secondly, the Lord's Supper is a means of grace where we receive all of the benefits of Christ's redemption. Thereby, the Spirit of Christ works on us spiritually and conforms us more into the image of Jesus Christ. And the third aspect is this meal prepares us for the future. It causes us to look to this, this time when, when heaven and earth will finally meet once again and we will be with our King and we will partake of the marriage supper of the Lamb. As we close this sermon, my objective this morning was not merely to teach you about the facts of the Lord's Supper, not even to teach you about the nature of the Lord's Supper, which we did do that, but my aim was to raise your love and affections toward the Lord's Supper. Is to bring your heart, bring your affections up to a level where you're just overflowing with, with, with happiness and joy and anticipation when you consider the Lord's Supper. One of the reasons why many churches don't take the supper weekly is because people feel, pastors feel that the church might become stagnant in their view of the Lord's Supper. That they think that the supper might be taken for granted if we take it weekly. Thereby causing the Lord's Supper to lose its unique and special place in the worship service. But friends, one's low view of the supper lies not in how frequent the church partakes of the supper, but how intensely one views the supper. It's not that we partake of the Lord's Supper too much, thereby we lose the special aspect of the Lord's Supper, but more so, you don't have a proper view of the Lord's Supper. Your view of the, of the Supper is not intense as it should be. The Puritan John Owen was right when he said, one reason why we so little value the ordinance of the Lord's Supper and profit so little by it may be because we understand so little of the nature of that special communion with Christ which we have therein. You don't understand what the Lord's Supper is and what happens at the Lord's Supper if you have a low view of the Lord's Supper. And I hope this lesson 
truly lifts up your heart and your affections toward the Lord's Supper. Don't be blind. And me, as a, as a minister, as one who shepherds over your soul, I don't want you to come to the Supper not knowing what you are doing. But I want you to receive all of the benefits that Christ has for us. The Lord's Supper is the sweetest meal for the Christian where we meet with our Christ and eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. It's a covenantal sign and seal where God says to us, you are my people. And when we partake of the supper, we say to God, you are my God. I end with the words of the Puritan Thomas Watson. He said, in the Lord's Supper, Christ bestows all things he both imputes his righteousness and imparts his loving kindness. He gives a foretaste of that supper, which we shall be celebrated in the paradise of God. To sum it all up, in the blessed supper, Christ gives himself to believers. And what more could he give? Saints, as we now consider the, uh, the participating and, particip- and partaking of the Lord's Supper, I honestly hope that you come to the Lord's Supper with a right mind. Not coming to the Lord's Supper as you have come in recent past, in recent years. But really grabbing hold of Christ and Him crucified. Really considering the sufferings and death of Jesus Christ. But we are also to remember the warnings that the Apostle Paul gives to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 and 28, he said, Whoever uh, therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. I would add this Eve morning as we dwell on our sin and we gauge whether or not we are worthy partakers of the supper, I ask that you ask forgiveness of your low view of the supper. That you ask Christ to heighten your view of the supper. Now, when we say that we are to examine ourselves We aren't to say, well, I sinned this morning, thereby I am an unworthy partaker of the supper. Saints, those who have weak faith are perfect candidates for the Lord's Supper. Because a weak faith can still grab hold on to a strong Christ. So if you have sinned this morning, if you have sinned in your past, Ask Christ for forgiveness and then come fellowship with your King. But also we ask that if you have not yet 